Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. For a long time, I thought about starting a podcast, but I kept putting it off because I tend to be pretty busy and I thought it would take a lot of time and effort to get started. But that's because I didn't know about Anchor. Anchor is free and doesn't require expensive recording and editing software. It makes it easy to get sponsorships and start earning money. And it distributes your podcast for you to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and just about every major podcasting platform. If you've had a show in your head, it's time to get it out there. Download the free app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So go ahead and get started today. Hey there, and welcome to a very special episode of Mythic Bind, where we explore the intersections between mythic and primary worlds. I'm your host, Andrew Snyder, and I am delighted to have you with me today. As I said, and as you know if you've been listening along with the last few episodes, this is a very special episode in honor of Tolkien Reading Day, which if you don't know takes place every March 25th to commemorate the day in Middle-earth when the ring was destroyed, and really it serves as an occasion to honor the legacy and the writing of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, before we get started, let me just take a brief moment to introduce what this podcast is, because I'm sure that we have some newcomers who came for the Tolkien content. Uh, so, as you already know, this is Mythic Mind, which gets its name from the fact that we are seeking to grow in wisdom through a life of meaning, and ultimately myth is the realm of meaning. Back in the first episode, I talked about how a scientific perspective, which is associated with the modern mind, at least theoretically, is concerned with matter. And this is obviously important for a great many reasons, and so it's not my intention to demean the scientific perspective. Uh, however, it, it is important that we recognize its limitations. As I said, science is concerned with matter, but it is not capable of telling us what matters. Uh, it is incapable of telling us what to do with matter, and why we ought to study it, or really why we ought to do anything at all. Uh, you cannot derive an ought from an is. No, uh, science is not itself a worldview. It's a tool that is helpful in as much as it is helpful in achieving a goal, and a goal is part of a story. So the way to live meaningful lives is to understand the myth that you are acting out and to ensure that your myth is in harmony with the true myth of the cosmos. Because, as Tolkien tells us, uh, we, we don't have the right to create ex nihilo. We don't get to start the story from scratch, uh, but rather we are sub-creators. We're meant to create in harmony with the way that we have been created. And so, with all that being said, Mythic Mind explores philosophy and stories interchangeably because, rightly understood, uh, they are inescapably intertwined. 
all philosophies tell a story, and all stories have a philosophy. And so far we've been discussing Soren Kierkegaard, who is the focus of my doctoral dissertation. We've gone through his The Concept of Anxiety, his short discourse to need God as a human being's highest perfection, and, and last time I, I talked a little bit about uh, the meaning and the joy that I've experienced in my own sorrows as a lead up into studying his The Sickness Unto Death, which talks about our capacity for despair, and then on the other side it talks about our capacity for achieving a life of authentic meaning in, in harmony with um, what we truly are as humans. And so if you haven't been following along, I definitely would encourage you to go back and binge from the beginning uh, because as we keep going in this podcast, we're going to be finding a lot of parallels between Kierkegaard's psychology and Tolkien's stories. Um, but that's something we're going to discuss more explicitly in the future. Actually, if you're just here for Tolkien, you should go ahead and subscribe because once we get into the next season, we're going to be discussing some of his non-legendarium writings. That, that is, uh, his stories and writings that don't necessarily take place in the uh, Middle-earth canon. And so this includes some of his essays, such as On Fairy Stories and The Monster and the Critics, uh, maybe some others, likely some of his letters, uh, but really we're going to be looking at the short stories found in the Tales from the Perilous Realm collection. So that's Reverendum, Farmer Giles of Ham, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, Smith of Wooten Major, and Leaf by Niggle. And then we're going to end that season by going through his translation of Beowulf. And so again, if you just came for Tolkien, I'd encourage you to listen to our backlog, uh, but you'll probably at least want to go ahead and subscribe so you're ready for the next season. Okay, so, so far, um, aside from references here and there, I haven't really discussed Tolkien, or really much fiction at all actually, on the podcast. But as I said, that is coming. However, Tolkien has actually been at work on this show from the very beginning. Uh, the concept of relating primary and secondary, or, or mythic worlds, uh, which is at the heart of the show, is pulled straight from his essay on fairy stories, which was monumental in developing my literary and really my life philosophy. I often say that I was radicalized by reading on fairy stories. Okay, so what are we doing today? Well, for a little while, I've been issuing a call for community submissions, both through a general invitation as well as specific solicitations, and I've received several contributions back. So today I'll be going back and forth between sharing some of my favorite passages from Tolkien and giving some brief reflections on those passages, and then similar content from many others, including several podcasters, some professors, some authors, and just some general fans, many of whom are far better versed in Tolkien than I am. Uh, but first, let me tell you a little bit about how I got into Tolkien and what keeps me coming back. This journey was partly academic and partly, I don't know the word for it, personal, emotional, Existential? That's probably the best word here, existential. Well, let's start at the beginning. I read The Hobbit when I was in middle school, and I enjoyed it well enough, but I'm somewhat ashamed to admit that I wasn't really a reader at the time. I enjoyed English class well enough out of my required subjects, but my free time, I typically just wanted to play video games. Uh, I started to read a bit more in high school, but uh, almost exclusively nonfiction, such as an occasional theology book. I watched the Jackson movies when they came out, I uh, certainly enjoyed them a great deal, but I still wasn't led to pick up the books. Fast forward through a bachelor's in philosophy, master's in Christian thought, and halfway through a theology PhD, and then I, I came across Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning lectures, and some of his related content about myths, stories, and, and whatnot, uh, and I, I heard his psychological analysis of the ancient myths and their corollaries in contemporary media, such as in classic Disney and so forth. Now, of course, before this point, I realized that stories can have deeper meaning, but somehow it had never really clicked before. All of my philosophical and theological education had been in the, in the abstract, um, perhaps due to an overly modern education, I never really learned how to read stories. 
But Peterson allowed me to see the power, the substance, the existential revelations that are found in stories. Now, more existentially, uh, during this time in my life, my, my wife and I were dealing with the sorrow of multiple miscarriages, and you can listen to the last episode to learn more about that. So I was in the midst of a conceptual breakthrough regarding my understanding of and my appreciation for fiction at the same time that I was in the midst of an existential wrestling with sorrow and, and faith. And so in other words, I was primed to embrace Tolkien. And then one day on Twitter, I came across Caitlin's Tea with Tolkien account, now, as my interaction with Tolkien up to this point had been rather shallow, I'm not quite sure why, but I was inclined to follow her. And you should too if you haven't already. Now, I don't know if the Anglophile in me just found her account name interesting or what, uh, Tea with Tolkien, but I followed and then I started listening to her podcast. And one of her episodes around that time, uh, she talked about the Riddle of Strider, which is one of the more well-known poems in The Lord of the Rings. All that is gold does not glitter, not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Hearing this poem struck me. It became clear to me that this was not just a plot device, but it was something fundamentally true, even though I was still developing my understanding of exactly what it meant for fiction to be true. Something in my heart became alive. Uh, although this poem is about the fictional Aragorn, and of course Tolkien wasn't writing allegory in the strict sense, the Christian themes here are, are so clear. In this poem, which I already plan to discuss uh, more another time, we see themes of enduring goodness that, through sorrow, uh, ultimately reigns victorious. We see echoes of the gospel, and by extent, we see the value of faithful, meaningful suffering. This is what I needed, and this is what I ever need. But, unfortunately, I still didn't pick up and read. In part, this is because I was working full-time, husbanding full-time, and going to school full-time with an ever-present list of assigned reading. So I simply didn't have much opportunity for elective reading. So, I listened to you talking, and then I thought, hey, I wonder if there are any other Tolkien podcasts. Now, I now realize that was pretty naive, because the answer to that question is yes. A thousand times yes. Yes, there are other Tolkien podcasts. The next to join my queue was The Tolkien Road. Uh, I really appreciated John and Greta's discussions, with John as the more established Tolkienian and, and Greta as the relative amateur, which I don't mean at all as a slight. Uh, their fun, informative discourse really helped me to enter in. And so, still not having read anything but The Hobbit some many years ago, I listened to their discussion of the Silmarillion and some other things. And then finally, in the second half of 2021, I decided that enough was enough. I started in on Lord of the Rings, I consumed it quickly, and I moved straight into the Silmarillion. Ever since cracking open the Fellowship and reading concerning Hobbits, I've been hooked. Uh, Tolkien's Legendarium is so enthralling and is so true. Now, how exactly is it true? Well, this is something we're going to be exploring today, and we will continue to discuss this idea in the future, particularly in the next season. That is how fiction, how, how um, Tolkien's world, really is a version of our own. But more on that uh, implicitly today and then explicitly another time. And so, as I said, I'm going to be sharing some of my favorite passages, but you've heard enough from me for now. So let's go ahead and get to our first submission, which actually is from John and Greta of The Tolkien Road. Hey there, this is John and Greta from the Tolkien Road podcast. Hey. Hey, hey. Hello, hello. <laughs> so, um, yeah, our podcast is the Tolkien Road, and uh, we primarily do chapter by chapter deep dives into all things Tolkien, and really love just getting deep and exploring um, 
everything he's written. Um, so I think I was the first one drawn to Tolkien, right, Greta? I think would that's you agree true. with that statement? I would certainly agree with that. Yes. I, be, I, I really uh, I'm drawn to Tolkien for so many reasons. And I think I would just summarize it by saying, I guess you'll find out when I you know, like when I do my reading, my passage, right? I think um, I think I'm drawn to Tolkien because I just get this sense of something incredibly deep and wonderful in his writings, uh, and that ranges from all of his Middle Earth writings to uh, works like Leaf by Niggle, Mythopoeia, um, on fairy stories and his letters as well so Mm -hmm. just uh so many so many different ways in which i'm drawn to tolkien um and he ultimately i think really he just gives me this incredible hope Mm. this incredible hope so greta do you want to say anything about why you're drawn to tolkien um well i will definitely give you credit for drawing me to tolkien Mm um you know my uh my literature of choice when I was in high school and college was um, more gothic in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But I believe you and I went to see the movie together. Um, Fellowship. The Fellowship. Jackson Fellowship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that just kind of, you know, wowed me and I think it wowed you too. And then we, uh, I think we, I've read the trilogy several times now as well as the Hobbit and, you know, all the stuff we've done on the, on the podcast as well. Um, my second time now through the Silmarillion, which is <laughs> that sounds crazy just saying yeah, it. Yeah. Um but but I now like I guess I would say that um now that you have drawn me to Tolkien, I it's not something that I'm that I read because you forced me to. Like I truly enjoy his writing Uh it's um it's just beautiful and thoughtful and very deep like you said there's definitely so much beneath the surface um and uh, i just feel like it's it's been a a huge like i feel smarter after i read tolkien (laughs) and i feel smart being able to intelligently discuss his works awesome so yeah all right well i am going to uh Read my passage first and then give you my brief explanation and then Greta will do hers. So my passage actually comes from On Fairy Stories. Um, You know, I I initially I felt kind of lame choosing something that wasn't from a Middle Earth writing. But um, but at root, I really think this gets to what I described as the reason I'm drawn to Tolkien. Of course, I love all his other writings, but this is the one I chose. And this is from the epilogue. uh, Actually, it's the, the pretty much the end of the essay. Uh, So the last two paragraphs of the essay on fairy stories. It is not difficult to imagine the peculiar excitement and joy that one would feel if any specially beautiful fairy story were found to be primarily true, its narrative to be history, without thereby necessarily losing the mythical or allegorical significance that it had possessed. It is not difficult, for one is not called upon to try and conceive anything of a quality unknown. The joy would have exactly the same quality, if not the same degree, as the joy which the turn in a fairy story gives. Such joy has the very taste of primary truth. Otherwise, its name would not be joy. It looks forward or backward. The direction in this regard is unimportant to the great eucatastrophe. The Christian joy, the Gloria, is of the same kind, but it is preeminently, infinitely, if our capacity were not infinite, were not finite, high and joyous. Because this story is supreme. And it is true. Art has been verified. 
God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. But in God's kingdom, the presence of the greatest does not depress the small. Redeemed man is still man. Story, fantasy still go on and should go on. The Evangelium has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, especially the happy ending. The Christian has still to work with mind as well as body, to suffer, hope, and die. But he may now perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose, which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he has been treated that he may now, perhaps, fairly dare to guess that the fantasy he may actually assist in that in fantasy he may actually assist in the effoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true, and yet, at the last, redeemed, they may be as like and as unlike the forms that we give them and as man, finally redeemed, will be like and unlike the fallen that we know. So I just really love this passage because it, um, in, in this passage, Tol- Tolkien basically connects his life's work with all of the Middle-earth stories, the Middle-earth legendarium, and, and just the whole concept of writing fantasy stories. He connects this all to the gospel. He connects it all to, uh, to our own history. And it's almost as if Tolkien believes that in some mystical way, the stories that he's composing are true, right? And that they will be given a greater truth, right? It all connects to this idea of subcreation. And so, you know, it just fills me with this incredible hope uh, to hear him say these words um, that all tales may come true. I mean, what an incredible line. Mm -hmm. And so I just read this and I think to myself, you know, Tolkien, he wasn't just a great writer. He was this incredible Christian mystic. And, um, and I, that's, that's essentially what draws me to Tolkien. So Greta. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. All right, so um, my passage is from um, of Baron and Luthien, which um, is a chapter from the Silmarillion, um, chapter 19 of the Silmarillion. Um, and I think um, I think my passage can, if, if you're familiar with the story, obviously it'll make more sense, but even if you're not familiar, maybe it'll, you'll love it so much that You'll go read the story because it's fantastic. And speaking Mm of fairy stories, I think this is the best ever. Wow. All right. So. The song of Luthien before Mondos was the song most fair that ever in words was woven and the song most sorrowful that ever the world shall hear. Unchanged, imperishable, it is sung still in Valinor beyond the hearing of the world and listening, the Valar are grieved. For Luthien wove two themes of words, of the sorrow of the Eldar and the grief of men, of the two kindreds that were made by Iluvatar to dwell in Arda, the kingdom of earth, amid the innumerable stars. And as she knelt before him, her tears fell upon his feet, like rain upon stones, and Mondos was moved to pity, who never before was moved, nor has been since. Therefore he summoned Baron, and even as Luthien had spoken in the hour of his death, they met again beyond the western sea. But Mondos had no power to withhold the spirits of men that were dead within the confines of the world, after their time of waiting. Nor could he change the fates of the children of Iluvatar. He went therefore to Monwe, lord of the Valar, who governed the world under the hand of Iluvatar. And Monwe sought counsel in his inmost thought, where the will of Iluvatar was revealed." I'm not going to spoil the whole story if you haven't read it. But um, that's my favorite chapter, first of all, because it always makes me want to cry. Um, it's just just the imagery and the words 
he chose to um, to describe Luthien's grief, and just you you can just feel the love that she has for Baron mm-hmm. um, in this, and the fact that her song and her her grief was so was so strong in and of itself that it moved Mondos, mm-hmm. um, a Valar, to pity, and he had never before done that. And not only has he moved to pity, but he's moved to then you know, kind of take action on the part of, of Luthien. And he, he goes to, to Monway and that just makes me think of the intercession that we have of the saints. Um, and, um, and just the, just really, again, there's hope there too. And there's just beauty mm-hmm. in, in the, um, in the length to which true love will, will, you know, the strength that true love will, um, will give us and the, the lengths to which we'll go for it. So that's my favorite. That's a good one. Well, thank you. Well, uh, we want to say thanks to Andrew uh, for inviting us to uh, yes. share this on your podcast. And uh, we hope you all enjoyed these particular passages. And if you haven't read these particular uh, passages or the story or the essay or story that they're contained in therein, I hope you'll go read them. So, I hope so too. They're really excellent. Yeah, they're so. fantastic. All All right. right. Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew, and happy Tolkien Reading Day, everybody. Yes. Wow. Uh, On Fairy Stories and Baron Luthien. Fantastic choices. And that's really hard to beat. And so thank you so much, John and Greta. That was wonderful. Um, I love John's description of Tolkien as a Christian mystic. And of course, all of what Tolkien had to say in that passage. Uh, And as I said, we're going to be giving a a full episode to On Fairy Stories uh, probably at the beginning of the next season. And then, of course, Baron Eluthian, what a fantastic tale, which Tolkien described as the kernel of his mythology. I actually went back and read that chapter again uh, this past Valentine's Day because, well, that's just the nerd I am. And so really, thanks for that, Greta. I could go on about those passages for a while, but we have a lot to get to, so let's go ahead and head to the next submission. Happy Tolkien Reading Day, Mythic Mine podcast listeners. My name is Arwen McCain. And I am the founder of Middle Earth News. It's a Tolkien fan-based website that I started back in 2011 and ran for about a decade before I handed the reins over to someone else and retired. I think what draws me to Tolkien's work is the craftsmanship he put into his writing. And I'm not just referring to the many languages that he created, but his ability to paint such a vivid landscapes. He has this amazing ability to reflect nature, nature's beauty in the story and poems that he told. You cannot walk through a forest without thinking events or a countryside without expecting some brightly painted hobbit doors peeking out from the hills. I have many passages from Tolkien's work that I love, but the one I'm currently enjoying is a quote said by Haldir in the Fellowship of the Ring, the Lothlorien chapter. It is as follows. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places. But still there is much that is fair, and though in all the lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. In that scene, Mary Brandebuck has commented on how if he had known the dangers outside the Shire, he would have never left. (laughs) And a shocked Haldir replies, not even to see fair Lothlorien? before reciting the quote. And while I find that extremely humorous, um, 
and you know, over imagining Haldir's surprise over Mary's uninterest in Lothlorien. The quote holds a more serious meaning for me, especially in the current unrestful times. Um, like news and social media hound us with dark things on a constant basis, and I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, to have felt that oppressiveness. So to be reminded that there are good and beautiful things in the midst of all of that is a refreshing ray of hope. And I think that's a reminder we all desperately need right now. So to end, I will also quote Legolas from Return of the King. For thus it is spoken, oft hope is born when all is forlorn. Thanks for that, Arwen. And what a great name. Uh, That's one of my favorite passages, too. That line from Haldir is just so perfect. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places. But still, there is much that is fair, and though in all lands love has now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. This is the kind of talking content that resonates with me the, the most deeply, His handling of the role of sorrow and its redemptive purposes has provided such consolation for me in my pain. Uh, Tolkien helps us to see the beauty and the strength that comes through the right kind of brokenness. So so again, uh, thanks for that, Arwen. Uh, And this leads to my first readings, which strike a related chord. I'm going to read two short passages that come from the Silmarillion uh, as they describe a couple of the Valar, which which if you don't know, are the uh, lowercase gods of Middle-earth, something like the Heavenly Court, although I don't want to identify them too closely, uh, specific biblical beings. First, here's a passage that describes my favorite of the Valar, Nienna. It is written, quote, Mightier than Este is Nienna, sister of the Fianturi. She dwells alone. She is acquainted with grief and mourns for every wound that Arda has suffered in the marring of Melkor. So great was her sorrow, as the music unfolded, that her song turned to lamentation long before its end, and the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. But she does not weep for herself, and those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance in hope. Here we see that sorrow is not an afterthought, for mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. The world was meant to suffer a a kind of brokenness, uh, for out of this brokenness a greater, a more beautiful good would arise. When we weep in compassion, when we learn true pity, when we cast down our pride and enter into the grief of others, we learn endurance in hope. We're told that Gandalf learned these things from Nienna, and we see this theme played out in Frodo, and really throughout the Fellowship, as they embark on their quest. 
And then, in reference to the Vala Olmo, uh, we get one of my all-time favorite quotes from Tolkien, which is along similar lines. Uh, he writes, quote, in the deep places, he gives thought to music, great and terrible, and the echo of that music runs through all the veins of the world, in sorrow and in joy. For if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, it springs from the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. End quote. Again, if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, it springs from the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. And this is something that I talked about more, and with more direct application toward the end of the last episode, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But I will say that uh, this right here is perhaps the greatest summation I've heard of the Christian understanding of joy. Christian joy is cruciform. The Christian hope is found in the resurrection, but in this life, it's experienced in the crucifixion. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to repeat everything that I said in the last episode, but it's when we willfully embrace our suffering in hope, uh, when our roots reach down into the underworld, that we're able to grow toward heaven and thereby stabilize this world in something meaningful. Uh, if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, its springs are in the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. Joy is not for the weak of heart. Okay, time for the next mission. This one comes from Jeremy Key, who introduces his recording as follows. He writes, I present most proudly a dramatic reading of the concluding passage of the chapter, The Ride of the Rohirrim. I chose this passage because, to put it simply, I think it is arguably the greatest thing Tolkien ever published, which puts it in the pantheon of some of the greatest passages in Western literature. It means a great deal to me, as much of my life has consisted of struggle, of riding into almost certain proverbial death. Not every fight is about winning. Some fights are about towing the line and standing your ground. The courage it would have taken to charge the lines of Mordor is a courage that can only come from great love. We do not love the sword nor the arrow, nor even the warrior. We love only that which they defend. And sometimes what they defend is something which cannot be easily quantified. Our being, our existence, our dignity in the deeper spiritual sense? Whatever the case, this is a deeply personal passage for me because it embodies the courage that a man must find in order to protect that which he loves. Then suddenly Mary felt it at last, beyond doubt, a change. Wind was in his face. Light was glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could be dimly seen as remote gray shapes rolling up, drifting. Morning laid beyond them. But at the same moment there was a flash, as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. For a searing second it stood dazzling far off in black and white, its topmost tower glittering like a needle. And then as the darkness closed again there came rolling over the fields a great boom. At that sound the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again. Rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. Arise! Arise, riders of Theoden! Fell deeds awake! Fire and slaughter! Spear shall be shaken! Shield shall be splintered! A sword day! A red day! Ere the sun rises! Ride now! Ride now! Ride to Gondor! With that, he seized a great horn from Guthlaf, his banner-bearer, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder, 
and straight away all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns in Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and a thunder in the mountains. Ride now! Ride now! Ride to Gondor! Suddenly, the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Eomer rode there, the white horse tail of his helm floating in the speed, and the front of his first arid roared like a breaking foam to the shore, but then Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers, ran like a new fire in his veins. And he was born upon Snowmane like a god of old, even as Orome the Great in the Battle of the Valar when the world was yet young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the host of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled, and they died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was upon them. And the sound of their singing that morning was fair and terrible, and it came to the city. Wow, thanks for that, Jeremy. Oh, and everyone, be sure to check out Jeremy's podcast, Through the Keyhole. Uh, we've discussed my appearance on a show for some time now, but that should actually happen at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but the, the Ride of the Rohirrim is definitely a fan favorite, and, and for good reason. I know it's one of my favorite passages. After what I believe to be a rather lackluster teaser for the Rings of Power during the Super Bowl, uh, I found some consolation in hearing Tolkien's own reading of the passage, which I posted to Twitter, and which went semi-viral pretty quickly. In our world that is so often painted gray, people are hungry for substance, for a line between good and evil. Uh, they're hungry for the sacrificial courage that charges against the threats to our humanity. Although I did have one guy say that this demonstrates the militant imperialism in Tolkien, and that somehow that's problematic, uh, but, but that's just absurd. As Faramir tells us, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I only love that which they defend. And so, we, we don't, or at least we shouldn't, love the fight itself. If you don't get this from reading Tolkien, uh, then you need to start reading again from the beginning. No, we fight because we must in order to defend that which is worth defending. Uh, we stand against the nihilism. We stand against the forces of darkness that seek to tear down all that is good and noble in our society, and more so in our home and, and in our own humanity. Uh, and so again, we don't fight just to fight, but we must draw lines and we must take heart, for the shadow will pass away when it is overtaken by the light. Alright, so we have several more submissions to get to, and so let's keep going, and we're going to cross the Atlantic for a bit to hear from Chris Newton. My name's Chris Newton, I'm the co-host of the podcast A Book at Breakfast, which I recently started with my friend Mark Charlesworth. Um, we cover a different book every month, and unsurprisingly, our book for September will be The Lord of the Rings, and hopefully many more Tolkien books to follow in years to come. Um... My dad read me The Hobbit when I was probably about five or six years old, and ever since then my heart has, has remained in Middle-earth. I think it's that combination of, on first reading or, or listening in my case, the world 
and its inhabitants feel so familiar um and at the same time you never quite you never quite leave you know it, it becomes your home forever and you just want to know more and then growing up to obviously read the lord of the rings and then the silmarillion and and then christopher tolkien's great tales um it it's been a lifelong journey really and it's something that i constantly return to tolkien's words for for hope and inspiration and encouragement and and joy and I don't know if I could really pick uh, a favourite passage or even a favourite book. Um, but one that springs to mind uh, is from The Two Towers. Uh, it's from the very end of the Journey, journey to the Crossroads. Um, and I think this passage captures the essence of Tolkien's writing so well. And it's... The brief glow fell upon a huge sitting figure, still and solemn as the great stone kings of Argonath. The years had gnawed it, and violent hands had maimed it. Its head was gone, and in its place was set in mockery a rough-hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead. Upon its knees and mighty chair, and all about the pedestal, were idle scrawls mixed with the foul symbols of the maggot folk of Mordor used. Suddenly, caught by the level beams, Frodo saw the old king's head. It was lying, rolled away by the roadside. Look, Sam, he cried, startled into speech. Look, the king has got a crown again. The eyes were hollow, and the carven beard was broken, but all about the high stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the boughs, as if in reverence for the fallen king. And in the crevices of his stony hair, yellow stone crop gleamed. They cannot conquer forever, said Frodo. And then suddenly the brief glimpse was gone. The sun dipped and vanished, and as if at the shuttering of a lamp, black night fell. Now, of course, that passage ends with black night falling, but we are, we are reminded just prior to that that they cannot conquer forever, you know, and they being being darkness or evil or decay or cruelty, however you want to to read that. But I think there's something you know tolkien's overarching themes of uh you know the the fall and mortality in the machine that there is the idea there that um nature cannot be overcome but there there is the in, inherent melancholy present in all of tolkien's writing um that this that the king's head is is gone you know those those the days of of glory have passed and something has been lost from the world that could never be recovered, um, a grandeur, a splendor. Um, but at the same time, we, you know, we have the flowers like small white stars. Um, you know, it's, it's indomitable. Uh, I think in such a grim part of the book as well, where hope seems um, it's thinnest almost, we are reminded that they cannot conquer forever. We are reminded that day will come again, and I just think that's wonderful. Thank you for that, Chris. 
I know I sound like a typical American Anglo fanboy for saying this, uh, but I'm going to say it. The English accent is just beautiful. But more substantially, what a marvelous, quintessentially Tolkienian hope that he just provided for us. It reminds us of another favorite passage of mine. This comes from The Return of the King, when Sam and Frodo are on the edge of losing hope. Uh, Tolkien writes, quote, There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark door high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart, and as he looked up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Go back and listen to that again. Memorize it, or at least that last sentence. The shadow is only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Remember, evil, whether moral or natural, uh, isn't really anything at all. Uh, Of course, it has an impact, uh, but in its substance, or rather, lack thereof, uh, it's actually a privation of the good. Uh, Good has substance, evil does not, just as light has substance, whereas darkness does not. And this actually matters, and it impacts the way that we approach the shadow. Uh, I'll talk more about the relationship between good and evil in Tolkien's Legendarium, uh, but for now, let's keep going with our next submission. Uh, Next up, we have Holly Ordway, author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, among other credentials. Uh, I'm definitely grateful for her involvement here. Hello, my name is Holly Ordway. I'm the Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute and visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. I've been captivated by Tolkien for years, ever since I was a girl, just drawn in by the beauty of his storytelling, um, his prose, his imagery, and his ability to convey the beauty and truth of, of really of our human experience. And the passage, the short passage that I'm going to share with you I think really conveys that combination of, of beauty and truth in the sense that he is giving us both joy and sorrow kind of wrapped up together. This is from the chapter called The Field of Cormalin, um, towards the end of The Lord of the Rings. And all the hosts laughed and wept, and in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords, and they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. Well, thanks again for that, Holly. Uh, What a beautiful passage that conveys some of what we've been talking about regarding the intermingling of sorrow and joy, of tears and blessedness. Uh, Okay, let's go ahead and move right into the next submission. Hello, my name is David Wolcott. I'm a veteran Christian apologist who primarily works out of ac3.teachable.com. I also have my own blog at davidwolcottchristianapologist.blogspot.com. and Tolkien. Tolkien is amazing. Um, my primary interest in him comes in, obviously, as fantasy. Um, I love languages, and I love what he's done with languages. I love learning about the languages he's developed and the history of those languages. Uh, I love fictional worlds, and he's created one of the most robust uh, and thoroughly developed worlds um, that it goes back uh, millennia in age. Uh, the peoples are richly developed. They each have their own uh, culture and custom. Um, it's just, it's an amazing 
world that he's created uh, that is just really fun to dive into and study and learn about. Uh, but there's also a uh, heavy Christian influence in this. Um, it's not nearly as uh, explicit as Narnia, um, but it is. Uh, there's still a lot that we can pull out uh, and see, and that's what I want to read today. Um, I did make a blog post on this uh, a couple months ago. So this reading is from uh, The Return of the King. It's from Chapter 7 in the Scouring of the Shire, Chapter 7, Homeward Bound. And it starts off with Butterbur talking with Gandalf and the Hobbits. And now they're gone for robbers and live outside, hiding in the woods beyond Archit, and out in the wilds northway. It's like a bit of the bad old times, tells Tullov, I say. It isn't safe on the road, and nobody goes far, and folks lock up early. We have to keep watchers all around the fence and put a lot of men on the gates at nights. Well, no one troubled us, said Pippin, and we came along slowly and kept no watch. We thought we'd left all trouble behind us. Ah, that you haven't, master, more is the pity, said Butterbur. But it's no wonder they left you alone. They wouldn't go for armed folk with swords and helmets and shields and all. Make them think twice, that would. And I must say it put me aback a bit when I saw you. Then the hobbits suddenly realized that people had looked at them with amazement, not out of surprise at their return, so much as in wonder at their gear. They themselves had become so used to warfare and to riding in well-arrayed companies that they had quite forgotten that the bright mail peeping from under their cloaks and the helms of Gondor and the Mark and the fair devices on their shields would seem outlandish in their own country. And Gandalf, too, was now riding on his tall gray horse, all clad in white with a great mantle of blue and silver over all and the longsword glamdring at his side. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. What, do I'm, what I'm reminded of with this passage is that we as Christians, uh, Christianity is not a weekend religion. You go to church on Sunday and you leave and that's it. Um, it is not a accessory to our life. It is not a uh, list of checkboxes that you believe and then nothing else happens. Christianity is very much supposed to change who we are. Uh, it's supposed to change our character, our hearts. Everything about our lives should be impacted and different because we are Christian. And that's what we see with the hobbits here. Um, it's not just, well, they went on a story and they came back and they had titles and awards, um, which they certainly did from King Aragorn. It's that they came back and they fundamentally looked different. They rode different. Um, they were actually literally taller, um, courtesy of the Entwater. Uh, but they were changed. Everyone that saw them 
recognized who they were, but they saw different people. And they saw people that, that for the thieves and villains, that they didn't want to mess with. And not to say that we as Christians should, you know, be seen as people that uh, someone doesn't want to mess with, but we should look different. Uh, when we come to Christ, he changes our hearts, he changes our life. And we should look different from that point forward. We should act different. We should think different. Um, we're still going to struggle with our flesh. We're still going to have, um, you know, periods of growth. Or we're still going to have things we have to grow through and grow past. We're still going to have habits we have to get rid of. Um, we're still going to have habits we need to build. But it should be evident that we are not like the world. It should be evident that we are not uh, Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu uh, or notably atheist. It should be evident that we are Christian, that there is something different between us and the world. And if there isn't something so evident, we need to look long and hard at ourselves, long and hard at our lives, at our decisions, uh, at our history in Christianity, and see if we look like the world, why? Why don't we look different from the world? Thanks for that, David. And that's exactly right. Uh, going on an adventure, uh, spiritual or otherwise, well, actually, I'd venture to say that really every real adventure is spiritual in some capacity. And if you've been following along with the podcast, uh, consider what Kierkegaard has had to say about spirit and why I might say that every real adventure is spirited. Uh, but anyways, yes, the journey changes us. It, it changes our relationship to the places that we've been. This reminds me of another passage uh, near the end of Return of the King, somewhere more or less uh, around the area that David just read from. Uh, here's a short conversation between Frodo and Gandalf during their journey back toward the Shire. Are you in pain, Frodo? said Gandalf as he rode by Frodo's side. Well, yes, I am, said Frodo. It is my shoulder. The wound aches, and the memory of darkness is heavy on me. It was a year ago today. Alas! There are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured, said Gandalf. I fear it may be so with mine, said Frodo. There is no real going back. Though it may come to the Shire, it will not be the same, for I shall not be the same. I am wounded with knife, sting, and tooth, and a long burden. Where shall I find rest? Gandalf did not answer. Sometimes our journeys change us so much that there simply is no going back. What we once called home is now a foreign land, and perhaps a foreign land is yet to be our home. This was certainly the case for Frodo, whose quest through sorrow and fire made him ill-equipped for Shire life, but it did prepare him well to leave mortal lands and to sail into the West, and this is something that I understand all too well. Uh, for more clarity as to what I mean by that, again, you should listen to the previous episode. All right, onward and upward. Uh, now let's hear from David Rowe. I'm going to read the introductory text he sent in, play his recording, and then read his rationale for selecting the passage. I'm David Rowe, and I run the Tolkien Proverbs account on Twitter. I also wrote a book called The Proverbs of Middle-Earth, which explores Tolkien's invented cultures through the lens of their proverbial wisdom. My reasons for loving Tolkien change regularly, principally because there are so many of them, and they are all competing for recognition. But as I write this today, the principal reason I would point to is sheer escapism, that when the world around me is one that I would like to escape, I can take myself off to Middle-earth and hide there. And not only can I hide there, but by being there, I can return to normal life, strengthened and encouraged. The herb master entered. 
Your lordship asked for king's foil, as the rustics name it, he said, or Athalas in the noble tongue, or, to those who know somewhat of the Valinorian, I do so, said Aragorn, and I care not whether you say now Asea Aranian or king's foil, so long as you have some. Your pardon, lord, said the man. I see you are a lawmaster and not merely a captain of war. But alas, sir, we do not keep this thing in the houses of healing, where only the gravely hurt or sick are tended, for it has no virtue that we know of, save perhaps to sweeten a, a fouled air, or to drive away some passing heaviness. Unless, of course, you give heed to rhymes of old days, which women such as our good Yoreth still repeat without understanding. When the black breath blows, and death's shadow grows, and all lights pass, come, Athalas, come, Athalas, life to the dying, in the king's hand lying. It is but a doggerel, I fear, garbled in the memory of old wives. Its meaning I leave to your judgment, if indeed it has any. It has been nearly a thousand years since the last king disappeared, yet through all those centuries this rhyme of lore was preserved, just like so many other things in Minas Tirith. In the right hands, it would have been explained precisely what King's Foil is for, but the herbmaster is oblivious. He has knowledge, but no insight, so to him it appears little more than a botanical nursery rhyme. I love the applicability of that, and I wonder how many of the Oxford academics around whom Tolkien spent most of his life were like that herbmaster full of trained knowledge, but unable to see the very practical truth that their learning pointed them towards. Thanks for that, David. And what an important point. Tolkien was instrumental in wrestling the life out of a, a cold academia that failed to recognize the real value in literature uh, beyond the academic musings and abstractions. And that's something I'm going to be talking about more in the next season, especially when I talk about on fairy stories and the monsters and the critics, and to some degree, Farmer Giles of Ham as well. Uh, so very important point here. And so yes, we, we ought to learn in the Arcane Towers institutions, but that's not where we should live. Um, okay, on to the next submission. Let's hear from Michael. Hi, Andrew. This is uh, Professor Michael Chahosky. I'm a um, humanities professor at St. Petersburg College in Florida. I'm the author of The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle-Earth which was published um, with Wipfenstock back in September of 2020. Uh, and I'm also the creator and um, main host of our podcast that my wife and I began called Mythic Mission. Uh, so very kind of similar to yours, actually. And uh, that's why I initially reached out. So thank you for letting me share some of what makes Tolkien so um, valuable and uh, uh, appealing to me and, and always has been. I really appreciate the opportunity to share if folks want to learn more about me, my book, my background, uh, my love of Tolkien, and my podcast, I've got a website that collects all of those things at www.mythic, M-Y-T-H-I-C, mission, all one word, dot com. So mythicmission.com. I've also got a Patreon or a Patreon page, excuse me, uh, that's linked up with that if people want to support Mythic Mission and uh, follow uh, what we're doing and get some cool perks and merch. Uh, so there's that. And I really um, would like to share uh, briefly why I was drawn to Tolkien uh, to begin with, and uh, really kind of go over this in the preface of my book, but just very briefly, kind of two interwoven uh, points. I was drawn to Tolkien initially um, before the movies came out, just uh, earlier in the year of 2001, actually, my brother started reading 
the books to me for the first time. And uh, as I tell him in the preface of my book, that uh, I was really drawn to Middle Earth and to his writings, to Tolkien's writings, because uh, it just felt so real. And I was so happy to learn later in life as I researched this for my book that other scholars and readers have felt the same. Uh, the way that Tolkien described reality always made me yearn that our world would feel a little bit more like Middle Earth. And I remember um, Peter Kreft saying something like this in his Philosophy of Tolkien book that, you know, our forests are more enchanted because we've walked through Lothlorien and Fangorn Forest. Um, and I know that in a way Tolkien intended, uh, you know, obviously Middle Earth is our, our Earth. So um, anyway, um, it's kind of a second interwoven point with this is that I wanted my life to feel more like a quest. I wanted to feel summoned by a king. I wanted to fight alongside a leader. I, I felt just this, this need to feel called in my life and a poignant sense of wanting a king to follow. I was also really surprised that many other people felt similarly, as I said, kind of learned this from other books later. So kind of made me feel less crazy. All right, and to kind of draw this out, and I talk about these moments, these transfigurative moments that Aragorn has throughout the, um, the Lord of the Rings uh, in my book. And I, I counted at least like 19 moments like this, I say, Here's my favorite passage. It's actually from uh, chapter seven, uh, Helm's Deep of uh, book three of the two towers. And uh, I'm reading from the uh, you know, Kindle edition, the one volume edition. And it's, a, you know, when Aragorn uh, comes uh, out on the ramparts of Helm's Deep uh, and he stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. As he looked forth, he saw the eastern sky grow pale and he raised his empty hand palm outward in token of parley. And they do a little dialogue, but um, after he tells him to flee, this is the section that really stood out to me. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies, that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley and some looked up doubtfully at the sky. But the orcs laughed with loud voices and a hail of darts and arrows whistled over the wall. And as Aragorn leapt down, a lot of things just noteworthy about this passage. The fact that they're called his enemies is significant to me. The royalty and power that's revealed in Aragorn um, even in the chapter after this, I think with the Palantir, there's a similar episode or a chapter or two after this. And I just love these transfigurative moments that we see the ranger, we see Strider becoming the man he always has been and, and that he was also destined to be. And that's why I love this passage is it really, really touches into what I said uh, about wanting to feel summoned and wanting to feel like that, wanting to feel that uh, not only I, maybe I could be somebody like that, but that I could be caught up in a quest with Aragorn and follow him into battle. And uh, there's just this respect and awe that Tolkien inspires in uh, readers. And I, I think there's a lot more to it than that. But anyway, that's, that's my, uh, my, um, my spiel. And I appreciate you letting me share. So uh, I hope your listeners uh, benefit from this and enjoy it. And thanks so much. And um, we'll uh, talk, talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for that, Michael, and I think this really hits at something fundamental in the human experience. We all yearn for purpose. We yearn for glory, not of ourselves, but rather we yearn to participate in that which is truly glorious. I really appreciate that Michael didn't just say he wants to be Aragorn, but rather that he wants to follow someone like Aragorn, the good king making his way into his kingdom. This is the kind of good that we ought to pursue, and it's ultimately uh, w what we are pursuing although we often go astray by following pretenders to the throne, uh, often ourselves. Before we go to the next submission, I want to monopolize the conversation for a bit to share another couple of my favorite passages. And I guess that's one perk of being the host. 
So I previously said that I'd come back around to talking about the relationship between good and evil in Tolkien's Legendarium. Uh, as I've already said, the shadow is just a passing thing, but light and goodness are eternal. So already, we know that for Tolkien, good and evil are not two equally powerful forces doing battle. Uh, goodness definitely has the upper hand, just as light has the upper hand against darkness. Well, Tolkien's moral ontology, sorry, that, that is his, uh, his understanding of good and evil, actually goes further than that. Not only is evil destined to lose against good, but evil is, in the end, an instrument used to bring about even greater good. Uh, that is, it, it works against itself. And we've already seen some glimmers of this, such as uh, that sorrow was woven into the music of the world before it began. But this theme of providence gets rather explicit. First, I want to read a passage from the Anulindale, that is the creation story at the beginning of the Silmarillion. To give you a little context if you haven't read it, Eru Iluvatar is the uncreated god who created all else. First he created the Ainur from the power of his thought, and the Ainur are lowercase gods who, uh, inspired by the glory of Iluvatar, made music that would play a role in shaping the physical world when it came to be. However, Melkor, the most powerful of the Ainur, broke the harmony, making his own melody in shattering pride. And this is where we pick up, and this is a fairly long passage, but I couldn't bring myself to cut it down. Okay, let's go. Then Alubatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled, and he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and unlike the former theme, and it gathered power and had a new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with it, and again there was a war of sound, more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then again Alubatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others, for it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies. But it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity, and it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow, from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as if many trumpets rang upon a few notes, and it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. In the midst of the strife, where at the halls of Iluvatar shook and a tremor ran down into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvatar rose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both hands, and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, and higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. Then Iluvatar spoke, and he said, Mightier the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and that all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. If you haven't read the Silmarillion, I hope this is enough to pique your interest. Basically, uh, no matter what tune Melkor makes, Iluvatar is able to incorporate it into his song in a manner that just serves to further demonstrate its goodness. Remember, evil isn't actually a thing, it's just a privation. So anything that Melkor is able to do stems from the fact that he is created by the omnibenevolent Iluvatar, and thereby brings Iluvatar glory. 
So regarding both the substantial nature of goodness and the unmatchable wisdom of Voluvatar, evil doesn't stand a chance. We see this theme run all throughout the Legendarium as evil intentions end up serving good purposes. For example, let's fast forward to the Fellowship of the Ring in the incredible chapter Shadows of the Past as Gandalf tells Frodo how he came to possess the ring. There was more than one power at work, Frodo. The ring was trying to get back to its master. It had slipped from Isildur's hand and betrayed him. Then when a chance came, it caught poor Diego, and he was murdered. And after that golem, and it devoured him, it could make no further use of him. He was too small and mean, and as long as it stayed with him, it would never leave his deep pool again. So now, when his master was awake once more and sending out his dark thought from Mirkwood, it abandoned Gollum, only to be picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo of the Shire. Behind that, there was something else at work, beyond any design of the Ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, and not by its maker. In which case, you also are meant to have it, and that may be an encouraging thought. It is not, said Frodo. I had to include Frodo's response there. Uh, how often are we able to understand purpose and providence intellectually, while clinging to our fears and sorrows existentially? In any case, Gandalf makes the role of providence clear here. The ring is an artifact of evil, and it wanted to return to its master, but Iluvatar ultimately guided its path from Isildur to Smeagol, who eventually uh, became the wretched Gollum, and then to Bilbo, and then to Frodo. That is, there was something at work, uh, beyond any design of the ringmaker, Frodo was purposed to have the ring. But now get this, uh, Frodo wasn't even purposed to destroy the ring, no, he was just meant to get it there. Uh, while he can certainly retain his title of hero, his strength failed at the cracks of doom. And so who was actually destined to destroy the ring? Well, Gollum. Uh, in his final desperation, he wrestled the ring away from Frodo, and then, with the ring, fell into Mount Doom. And so even Frodo didn't ultimately destroy the ring. In an act of providence, this task was appointed to Gollum, in direct opposition to his intentions. And, and so the way all this fits together is just so wonderful, uh, both as a story and philosophy. Uh, there is so much consolation here for those who are willing to receive it. Uh, Tolkien truly was this great genius, this great Christian mystic. Uh, okay, back to our submissions. Let's hear from Talia. My name is Talia. I host the Enchanted Library podcast featuring read aloud stories. I fell in love with Tolkien in high school, and his writings still thrill me today because it winds its way through the stories and worlds through poetry, food, and song. And he took her in his arms and kissed her under the sunlit sky and he cared not that they stood high upon the walls in the sight of many. And many indeed saw them, and the light that shone about them as they came down from the walls and went hand in hand to the houses of healing. And to the warden of the houses, Faramir said, Here is the Lady Eowyn of Rohan, and now she is healed. You know, Eowyn and Faramir's relationship is one of my favorite parts at the end of The Lord of the Rings. She struggles with this identity and goal, this ideal that she has, and she's created this in her mind, and only when she gives that up, she recognizes this patient love of Faramir. And it's just such a thrilling conclusion um, and really redemption of her and the whole story. Thanks, Talia. And that's a great insight. Sometimes we have to give up what we're looking for in order to find what we're looking for. And who doesn't love the faramir Erwin relationship? Uh, good old Farwin, as, as they're called by nobody. Okay, I'm so sorry for saying that. Uh, moving on, uh, Jill Richardson, please take us away from here with some more solid A1 content. 
I'm Jill Richardson. You can find me at jillmrichardson.com and my socials are all there. I have told the story many times of why I'm drawn to Tolkien and his work. I joined my family in the theater in December of 2001 for the Fellowship of the Ring. I was unexpectedly enchanted. I had not read the book, but it was that moment in the minds of Moria when Frodo wishes he had never seen dark times and can only know the innocence of the Shire. That's the moment that took hold of me. When Gandalf replied that that was not for us to decide, but all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given with us. I cried because it was two months after 9-11. The fear was still very raw and those words said all that needed to be said in that moment for me. I went home and I read the book and I read everything that I could that he wrote and then everything I could find that was written about him. And I flew to Oxford in 2018 specifically to see the exhibition of his work. And I wrote a book about his characters called Hobbits, You, and the Spiritual World of Middle-Earth, a book of devotionals for teens. So yeah, you could say I kind of went all in. And tonight, I and my guest, special guest, will be reading part of the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Mary crawled on all fours like a dazed beast, and such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. King's man, King's man, his heart cried within him. You must stay by him. As a father you shall be to me, you said. But his will made no answer, and his body shook. He dared not open his eyes or look up. Then out of the blackness in his mind, he thought that he heard Durnhelm speaking. Yet now that voice seemed strange, recalling some other voice he had known. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Be gone, foul dwimmer-like, lord of carrion, leave the dead in peace. A cold voice answered. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation, beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Durnhelm laughed. 
and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eamon's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living dark or undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The winged creature screamed at her, but the ringwraith made no answer and was silent, as if in sudden doubt. Very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. He opened his eyes and the blackness was lifted from them. There some paces from him sat the great beast and all seemed dark about it. And above it loomed the Nazgul Lord like a shadow of despair. A little to the left facing them stood she whom he had called Durnhelm. But the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her and her bright hair released from its bonds gleamed with pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes, gray as the sea, were hard and fell, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Eowyn it was, and Durnholm also, for into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw riding from Dunharrow, the face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart and great wonder, and suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die, so fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone, unaided. The face of their enemy was not turned toward him, but still he hardly dared to move, dreading lest the deadly eye should fall on him. Slowly, slowly he began to crawl aside. But the black captain, in doubt and malice intent upon the woman before him, heeded him no more than a worm in the mud. Suddenly the great beast beat its hideous wings and the wind of them was foul. Again it leaped into the air and then swiftly fell down upon Eowyn, shrieking, striking with beak and claw. Still she did not blench, maiden of the Rohirrim, child of kings, slender but as a steel blade, fair but terrible. A swift stroke she dealt, skilled and deadly. The outstretched neck she clove asunder and the hewn head fell like a stone. Backward she sprang as the huge shape crashed to ruin, fast wings outspread, crumpled on the earth, and with its fall, the shadow passed away. A light fell about her, and her hair shone in the sunrise. Out of the wreck rose the black rider, tall and threatening, towering above her. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears, like venom he let fall his mace. Her shield was shivered in many places, and her arm was broken. She stumbled to her knees. He bent over her like a cloud, and his eyes glittered. He raised his mace to kill. But suddenly, he too stumbled forward with a cry of bitter pain, and his stroke went wide, driving into the ground. Mary's sword had stabbed him from behind, shearing through the black mantle and passing up beneath the hauberk had pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee. Eowyn, Eowyn, cried Mary. Then tottering, struggling up with her last strength, she drove her sword between the crown and mantle as the great shoulders bowed before her. The sword broke 
sparkling into many shards. The crown rolled away with a clang. Eowyn fell forward upon her fallen foe. But lo, the mantle and hauberk were empty. Shapeless they lay now on the ground, torn and tumbled, and a cry went up into the shuddering air and faded to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind, a voice bodiless and thin that died and was swallowed up and was never heard again in that age of this world. And there stood Meriadoc the hobbit in the midst of the slain, blinking like an owl in the daylight, for tears blinded him. I chose this particular part because, well, for one, I love Eowyn. This moment of, I am no man, as she said it in the movie, was the one I stood for and cheered in the theater. I mean, I get being a woman in a man's field, but really, I just love the places where Tolkien gives credit for the bravery of the smallest and, and the least among us. You see, see how he draws out Mary's heroic choice, this tiny hobbit who should by rights be too terrified to move, deals a blow that makes the Nazgul's death possible. And he does it out of love. And Eowyn does too. She goes to battle for, for glory, but she kills the ringwraith out of deep love for her uncle. And Tolkien shows in the end that courage is best when it's born out of love, not desire for personal glory or war of all things. And I love this. And I love the courage of the underdog. Or as Tolkien says elsewhere, I have found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Thank you, Jill. A great reflections and a great passage. The Battle of Pelennor Fields is definitely one of my favorite chapters. She said all I could about it and more, and so I'll leave it there. Uh, however, uh, I will say that some of what she said toward the end also reminded me of the line from Tolkien's letter to Milton Waldman uh, when he says that the wheels of the world are often turned, not by lords or governors, e even gods, but by the seemingly unknown and the weak. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to our final submission. This contribution comes to us courtesy of Alan and Sean from the Prancing Pony podcast. They actually sent me an excerpt from their Tolkien Reading Day episode, and so look them up to hear more. Again, that's on the Prancing Pony podcast. Uh, I've been listening to the Prancing Pony for some time, and if you're enjoying this episode, I definitely recommend giving them a listen. Oh, and I haven't mentioned this, but technically each Tolkien Reading Day has an assigned theme. I've obviously been taking more of a generalist approach, um, but, but this year's theme is love and friendship. So that's what Sean and Alan's uh, focus is here, and so here's their clip. Only too clearly, Sam saw how hopeless it would be for him to creep down under those many-eyed walls and pass the watchful gate. And even if he did so, he could not go far on the guarded road beyond. Not even the black shadows, lying deep where the red glow could not reach, would shield him long from the night-eyed orcs. But desperate as that road might be, his task was now far worse. Not to avoid the gate and escape, but to enter it alone. His thought turned to the ring, but there was no comfort there, only dread and danger. No sooner had he come in sight of Mount Doom, burning far away, than he was aware of a change in his burden. As it drew near the great furnaces, where, in the deeps of time, it had been shaped and forged, the ring's power grew, and it became more fell, untamable save by some mighty will. As Sam stood there, even though the ring was not on him but hanging by its chain about his neck, he felt himself enlarged, as if he were robed in a huge, distorted shadow of himself, 
a vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. He felt that he had from now on only two choices, to forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. And then all the clouds rolled away, and the white sun shone, and at his command the veil of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. Which, spoiler, they are. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we go on, because mm-hmm. I, I know you've got a moment right after this that you want to read, but mm-hmm. I love the last two passages that where we see that it is his love for Frodo. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. It really lifts him up above, yeah. first of all, his fear, right? Yep. Because it's his, it's his love for Frodo in the last passage I read that gives mm-hmm. him the courage to come after that's him. That's right. He even forgets his peril. Yeah. Yeah. He forgets his peril. His love for Frodo gives him courage. And then here, his love for Frodo kind of anchors him. It kind of shields him from the temptation. Obviously, he still faces the temptation, but it is his love for Frodo that allows him to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. One lifts him up and the other, you know, it holds him down. It it keeps him humble. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps him humble, but it keeps him tethered. Yes. That's a great way of putting it. Keeps him tethered. Keeps him, you know, remembering his... Remembering his place, remembering his limitations, but also giving him the courage to do the most he can within yeah. his means. And that's one of the reasons why we pick these passages, right? As, mm-hmm. as we're trying to find a section that, you know, contains a series of discussions that, that mention his love for Frodo and Frodo's love for Sam, as we'll see later. Yeah. Uh, this one yeah. really was the one that came to mind. But, yeah, you know, of course, Sam does know that these visions are a mere cheat. He knows he can't use the ring. That's when he starts to head towards the tower and he sees a few orcs, at least a couple of orcs, shot dead right in front of him. They are definitely fighting amongst themselves, and that's where I'm going to pick up. He crept on, and as he went, he wondered how many orcs lived in the tower with Shagrat, and how many Gorbag had, and what they were quarreling about, if that was what was happening. Shagrat's company had seemed to be about 40, and Gorbag's more than twice as large. But of course, Shagrat's patrol had only been a part of his garrison. Almost certainly, they were quarreling about Frodo and the spoil. For a second, Sam halted, for suddenly things seemed clear to him, almost as if he had seen them with his eyes. The mithril coat. Of course, Frodo was wearing it, and they would find it. And from what Sam had heard, Gorbag would covet it. But the orders of the Dark Tower were at present Frodo's only protection, and if they were set aside, Frodo might be killed out of hand at any moment. Come on, you miserable sluggard, Sam cried to himself. Now for it. He drew Sting and ran towards the open gate. And then he drew Stuart Copeland. I know, I was thinking the same and then thing. he drew a picture of Andy Summers. Let me just stop real quick and draw a picture of all the members of the police. <laughs> right. <laughs> it never gets old. I know, it really doesn't. Earlier when he sheathed Sting, I'm like, well, does he have anything to say about that? 
<laughs> I don't want to go back in the sheath. Not the sheath. Not the sheath. Not the sheath. No. Man. So sorry, people. For those of you who have not heard all of our sting references, yes, we 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 cannot resist the temptation to no. always insert Gordon Sumner anytime Frodo <laughs> slash Bilbo's sword is mentioned. And so many times now I just picture him holding that, you know, it's a it's a sword hilt, and on the sword yeah. instead of a blade is a little little sting. <laughs> yeah. The the fade Routha sting for the, yeah, the fade Routha sting is like basically got no shirt on, bikini bottom. He's all right? oily and shiny. With the spiky hair. That's <laughs> yeah. what he pokes people with. He pokes them with the For sure, yeah. Fade Routh's hair. Definitely a piercing weapon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now that we've completely ruined Sting for you forever and ever, folks. We'll get back to love oh. and friendship. <laughs> Let's get back to love and friendship. And I've got the next passage because Yeah, yeah. There's this moment with the watchers, and then Sam gets into the courtyard and then into the tower. He sees a bunch of dead orcs and encounters one who runs away from him, and I will pick up there. Sam plodded on. He felt that he was on the right road, and his spirits had risen a good deal. He thrust the ring away and tightened his belt. Well, well, he said. If only they all take such a dislike to me and my sting, this may turn out better than I hoped. And anyway, it looks as if Shagrat, Gorbag, and company have done nearly all my job for me. Except for that little frightened rat, I do believe there's nobody left alive in the place. And with that, he stopped, brought up hard as if he had hit his head against the stone wall. The full meaning of what he had said struck him like a blow. Nobody left alive. Whose had been that horrible dying shriek? Frodo! Frodo! Master! he cried, half sobbing. If they've killed you, what shall I do? Well, I'm coming at last, right to the top, to see what I must. Oh, poor Sam. Yeah? Oh, there's nobody left alive in the place. Uh, it's like, oh, oh no, oh. there's nobody left alive in the place, right? Exactly. Yeah. Terrifying moment. Yeah. So Sam works his way up. He ends up being a witness to Shagrat arguing with Snaga and then killing Gorbag. And Sam tries to confront him, but then Shagrat runs away with a bundle, which mm -hmm. we know to be the mithril shirt, which we've right. seen previously in book five mm -hmm. at the Black Gate. And then Sam keeps climbing and then reaches what he thinks is a dead end. Mm -hmm. And I'll pick up again there. He ran back to the lower story and tried the door. It would not move. He ran up again, and sweat began to trickle down his face. He felt that even minutes were precious, but one by one they escaped, and he could do nothing. He cared no longer for Shagrat or Snaga or any other orc that was ever spawned. He longed only for his master, for one sight of his face or one touch of his hand. At last, weary and feeling finally defeated, he sat on a step below the level of the passage floor and bowed his head into his hands. It was quiet. Horribly quiet. The torch, that was already burning low when he arrived, sputtered and went out, and he felt the darkness cover him like a tide. And then softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing. His voice sounded thin and quavering in the cold, dark tower, the voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit that no listening orc could possibly mistake for the clear song of an elven lord. He murmured old childish tunes out of the Shire, and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. And then suddenly new strength rose in him, and his voice rang out, 
while words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune. In western lands beneath the sun the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing, or there may be tis cloudless night and swaying beeches bare, the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Beyond all towers strong and high, he began again, and then he stopped short. He thought that he had heard a faint voice answering him. Thanks, Sean and Alan. I really appreciate that. And I really love the ending there, with Sam despairing in the rescue of Frodo. Uh, his heart his heart is rekindled at the intersection of home and the path ahead. He's reminded of some rhymes and sentiments of the Shire, filled in with his own words befitting of the occasion, and thereby regains something of his heart. Uh, perhaps you can be heartened by these words as well. Though here at journey's end I lie, in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. And that, I believe, is a good note on which to conclude. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this journey through Tolkien's writings and the impact that they've had on so many. I hope you've come to see, if you hadn't already, they're not just fanciful stories for nerds. Now, they might be that, but they're not just that. Tolkien wrote remarkable, engaging stories that pull you into another world. But in the end, you come to find that he's actually writing of our world. After all, he tells us, legends and myths are largely made of truth. And indeed, present aspects of it can only be received in this mode. And long ago, certain truths and modes of this kind were discovered and must always reappear. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it wherever you can. I hope it provides some joy for those who already appreciate Tolkien, and I hope it inspires some onlookers to come in a little closer, uh, maybe even to pick up and read. If this is you, here's my recommended reading list, which I think is fairly typical, even though some might have other suggestions. Uh, I say that you start by reading The Hobbit, which is the easiest to read in the Legendarium, and it provides some important background information for your next read, The Lord of the Rings. Next, I would suggest his essay on fairy stories, uh, although you might want to read that sooner rather than later if you're going to be following my discussion in the next season. Uh, next, I suggest The Silmarillion, which is difficult, but an oh-so-worthwhile read, and I can definitely recommend some resources for making the most out of that, uh, but I don't want to bog you down with that now. Okay, so uh, again, uh, please share this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave me a five-star review, and maybe a positive comment on the podcasting platforms that allow for that. Also, if you'd like to provide some financial support to allow me to do things like this more consistently, and also to gain access to exclusive content, you can head over to patreon.com slash Snyder. Starting at the $5 a month tier, you'll gain access to an exclusive podcast feed which grants you access to early episodes of Mythic Mind, my blog readings, and coming very soon, a series of readings and reflections on Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, you can get a free taste of that if you go back and listen to the episode on the Frog King or Iron Henry. Alright, that's it for now, but the road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, let others follow it who can. Let them with a new journey begin, but I at last with weary feet will turn towards the lighted end, my evening rest and sleep to meet.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.